If you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, in the Blue Pew Bibles, that is on page 980. This morning we'll be picking up in verse 27 and reading through the end of the chapter. But before we come to God's Word, let us ask for His help in prayer. Hello, Lord, we do ask. We know that you are present with us, but we ask for your help. We are tired thinking about all of celebrations and cookouts and things we have yet to do later on today. Good things. But we pray they would not distract us from your word. And that you would teach us and instruct us and shape us that we might look more like your son. That you would bring us into conformity to your holiness. I pray that you would do all of this for the sake of your beloved church. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of our Lord. The question for us this morning is what are we as the church to make of the increased opposition, persecution, hostility that comes at the church from the world? It's not a controversial statement to say that the church in America has experienced over the last 75 years or so uh, a level of cultural privilege that has been relatively unrivaled the rest of American history and to some extent the rest of world history. It used to be the case that being a Christian gave you a, a measure of, of social capital. There was a level of respect that your neighbor didn't have if they did not attend the local church. Again, Christians were, were respected. They were upheld in society as exemplary members, what it meant to live upright, moral lives. It was a net positive to be a follower of Christ. 
And even those who were not Christians had a respect for those who were. Safe to say that is no longer the case. About, you know, 20 years ago, Christians went from being seen in a positive light to more of a, a neutral light. And then in the last 10 to 15 years, went from being net neutral to now a net negative. To say that you are a Christian usually in our society comes at a cost. You will lose some measure of standing in our culture. And I suspect that as the years go on, that loss will become greater and greater. Now, what do we do with that reality? I think it's a reality. How do we respond to that news? I suspect some of you hear that and, and fear starts welling up in your chest. Think, what's life going to be like for me in 20 years? What's life going to be like for my kids, for my grandkids? What kind of world are they going to grow up in? Some maybe feel anger rising up in them, resentment. It's all the fault of those liberals and their agenda. Maybe some of us, we feel we need to retreat from the world, build bigger walls, build up our own communities, our own businesses, and just keep the world out from the church. It's, um, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to take it to the world. We're, we're not going to lose our power. We're not going to lose our privilege and our standing. So we're going to look to those who are going to stand up for Christ, stand up for Christian values that are going to fight the enemy, whether it be in our politics or our theology, in our churches or in our culture. How do we respond to this news? Well, how we respond to this growing persecution will be entirely shaped by our understanding of God's purpose in ordaining that persecution. Yes, don't think for a second that this is somehow outside of God's control, that this erosion of our culture is beyond God's understanding or power. Think that, oh, Satan's finally winning this battle between good and evil and is finally getting the upper hand on God. No. God is perfectly sovereign over every cultural whim and wind. And when the church faithfully endures God-ordained persecution for the gospel, it refines her so that she might shine more brightly in a dark world. That is the main idea for this morning sermon, and that is the main outline for this morning sermon. When the church faithfully endures, so we're going to look at what does that mean? God-ordained persecution for the gospel. Yes, it is God-ordained. 
That endurance refines the church so that she might shine more brightly in this dark world. And we'll look at how we are to do that. I mentioned earlier some possible responses to this cultural erosion. But how does the Bible describe what our faithfulness should look like? What attitudes and dispositions should mark the church in the face of such opposition? There's a few ways that we see Paul directing the church. First, we are to recognize that we are citizens of a gospel-bought kingdom. So we live in light of that reality of the gospel. Again, Paul opens saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this word for letting your manner of life, living in a worthy manner, it's a word that he's using that is hearkening back to the Philippian status as Roman citizens, that you live in a certain way as members of this society. Remember, Philippi was a rather prominent Roman colony. And so those living there would have had a pride in who they were as, as Roman citizens, just naturally, not an arrogant pride, but just, oh, I, I love the city that I'm from. Just like we think, oh, I, I love being from, from not just Michigan, pure Michigan, but a couple from Texas, that they still get those commercials down in Texas, and they're jealous of what it means to be a Michigander. This call to live as worthy citizens would have been a familiar call to those living in Philippi. Think of how we understand being Americans. Proud to be an American, where at least we know we're free. There's a right sort of pride and sort of American exceptionalism. You are glad to be an American, and you understand that there's ways that you ought to live in light of your citizenship. And Paul tells the Philippians, proud Roman citizens, that your spiritual citizenship trumps your earthly citizenship. He's telling them, you aren't meant to organize and, and structure your life simply to reflect your Roman pride. You're to live your life in a way that is to reflect your gospel identity, who you are in light of your allegiance to Christ. You have been bought by Christ. You have been redeemed by Christ. You have been given an eternal inheritance that is secured by Christ. All of this given to you, Christ's bride by grace. And so he says, you live in light of that reality in a way that is worthy of what Christ has done for you. So don't trade in what you already have for the scraps of the world. Yeah, being a Roman citizen is great. Being a heavenly citizen, a gospel-bought 
citizen is far better. He tells him, do not set aside what Christ has done, seeking to prosper in your own work, prosper in your earthly lives. You live in light of the gospel. Faithful endurance, it responds to the gospel. And faithful endurance also proclaims the gospel. It is true, we are at war with the powers of darkness. And there are different ways to wage this battle. You can seek to crush our opponents into submission, fighting with the tactics of the world, or you can point them to the one who was already crushed for them. Praise God. The way he fights the battle is with patient endurance, patiently forbears with every one of his enemies so that he might save those that he calls to himself. He holds out hope of the gospel to those who still reject him, pleading to them to turn from their sin and back to him. I think if God did not patiently forbear with sinners, every one of us should have been struck dead the moment we took our first breath. But God is patient, calling to his enemies, setting forth the hope that we have in Christ to his enemies, that he might reconcile with them and bring them back to himself. Yes, Jesus is king. He's king that calls those wandering, those enemies of his cross to come to him to find rest for their souls. So how do we respond to the world? Tell them that Jesus loves them, that he died for them, that they can have freedom from all of their unrighteousness. That is what faithfully enduring in light of the gospel looks like. Loving your enemies as Christ loved you, his enemy. Faithful endurance is also God's people united with one another. Paul tells them that he, he wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. This is, is one of the key themes now in Paul's letter that he, he's expressing the Philippians that he's going to carry on through the rest of chapter two, and he'll pick up even later in chapter four. Chapter two, he's given them all the example of Christ's humility. And he says, being of, again, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He wants unity among the Philippians. In chapter four, he says that I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side, in that language, with me in the gospel. 
So evidently, there is some fracturing within this Philippian church, and Paul's reminding them that faithful endurance means a unity among the body. Their unity. They're, they're laboring side by side, just like soldiers in a battle hold the line together. That unity is an outward expression of the spiritual union that we have with one another in Christ. And so he wants them to recognize Christ has united you to himself and therefore to one another. Now outwardly, you need to reflect that inward reality. Telling that unity is necessary if they are going to faithfully endure in their trials. Lastly, see that faithful endurance, it is unafraid and it is unflinching in the face of persecution. Paul says, I want you to stand firm, not be frightened in anything by your opponents. We don't shrink back and, and hide our faith, worried what the world is going to think about us. We don't hide our faith in hopes that we, we won't have any retaliation against us, that we can avoid persecution. So you, you don't avoid persecution. You stand firm in the face of it. And we also don't panic. We don't fight the way the world fights with the world's tools. Now Paul says, you stay the course using the means that God has given you to do this work. God has given us his word and his spirit to do the work of changing hearts. And it's easy when we're afraid to abandon our post, to, to go find friends to help us in the fight, we're going to change tactics because it seems like the way we've been doing things isn't working. Again, that, that's the whole point of the gospel. When has God's way ever seemed to align with the world's way? Even if it seems like things aren't working, God says, you go about the work that I've given you to do the way that I've called you to do it. And then going through the Old Testament, th think about the way God used Joshua to defeat Jericho. I want you to walk in circles around this town a few times, do it quietly, and then the last time, I want you to walk a bunch more and then shout. That's how you're going to defeat this great city. Okay? And God uses Gideon, which we've been looking at in Judges. He defeats the Midianites with 300 dog lappers carrying hidden torches. It's an odd battle strategy, isn't it? Young David defeats mighty Goliath with just a slingshot. Christ defeats death by dying on the cross. God has always used the weak things of the world 
to shame the wise. And all of those means that he's using, all those weak ways that he has used, they work not because we're brilliant, because Joshua was a great commander. All of these means work because God's people trusted God, walked by faith, and God did the work. What God has given us to do to proclaim the gospel, to transform hearts by the word and his spirit will work because God's word and his spirit work. Dear Christian, yes, we are in a battle for the hearts of those around us. You've been given a few tools, prayer and the gospel. Those are your means. That's what you have in your arsenal. And we trust the Spirit of God will be at work through those means to do the work of God in the hearts of the world. We have the same faith that we saw in Joshua and Gideon and David. We don't need to run and hide. We don't need more weapons. We need unflinching faithfulness to what God has called us to do. Even if that faithfulness leads to temporary suffering. See, affliction, suffering for the sake of the gospel, is not a sign that God's means are not working nor are they a sign that God has abandoned you or abandoned his work. I'm going to provide somewhat enhanced translation here of Philippians 1 to help draw out the nuances of what Paul is saying. He's saying it has been graciously granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but on behalf of him to suffer. Think about that. What's Paul saying? What does he want us to understand? Think of the Philippian church. They're facing the same trials that Paul had. What's he trying to communicate to them? We have to understand that that granting, God is granting us to suffer. that, That connotes that there's a purpose. God doesn't just grant things haphazardly, so we'll see what happens. There's a purpose in what God is doing in granting suffering to the Philippian church. If God is completely sovereign, then this suffering we're facing is not happening to us just by coincidence or happenstance. It's not bad luck or fate that the church is facing increased persecution in the world. It has been given from the fatherly hand of God. And it is graciously given, Paul says. God's purpose in our suffering is for our good. We ought not see it as a sign that we're doing something wrong if the church is facing increased opposition. In fact, it is a sign that we are doing something Right. 
It's easy to face adversity. To feel like, oh, my, my life is just spinning out of control. God must be punishing me for, for some sin in my life. I think, well, I'm facing all of this opposition as I seek to make the gospel known. So, so God must be mad at me. And, and maybe once I figure out what he's mad about, then he'll stop and we can go back to enjoying a life of ease. That is never in the vocabulary of the biblical authors. Paul says that suffering for the sake of Christ is graciously given to us, that God has good intentions for you, even in your suffering. Even the opposition of the world, which is causing the suffering, is not beyond God's control. It is granted from his very hand. I think leads to an obvious question. Why? Why would then God do this? If the goal is the conversion of God's enemies, why would he not just let us prosper? Make the church the most powerful institution in the world? Why would he let his beloved bride face such hostility and ridicule and scorn? I'm not going to answer all of the why, but I think Paul gives us some reasons. First, in our suffering at the hands of the world, we are demonstrating Christ's suffering to the world. Again, Paul, Paul says it twice here in this enhanced version that I, that I read, twice in the Greek. He says that we are suffering on behalf of Christ, or for the sake of Christ. But what I think that the ESV translation misses by for the sake of Christ is it misses that, that our small suffering at the hands of the world is meant to be a window in which the world sees the, the greater sufferings of Christ that, that he endured. For the world. That, that's what he means by we suffer on behalf of Christ. We're, we're holding Christ forward to the world. I think Christ himself was betrayed and abandoned and mocked, killed, but by the very people that he came to save. He came amongst the Jews, preached the gospel to them, bring them back to the Father. They rejected him and they put him to death. And so, as we, with that same gospel message, endure the same afflictions, we're holding forth Christ in his afflictions to the world. To the world. We're holding forth in our own words and our deeds, those that we're seeking to save, what Christ did for those we're seeking to save. We're, we're representing, we're, we're ambassadors for Christ to the world, putting on display in miniature what he did in the greater. And this is, I think, an astounding 
reality, when, when we really think about this, that as God grants us, gives us suffering, we are being granted the opportunity to share in the suffering work of Christ to bring the gospel to the world. In a small way, we get to participate and partake in the same life and suffering that Christ partook to save his enemies. It's obviously a salvation that, that Christ accomplishes. We, we do nothing to add to his work. But we get to deliver through the same means, in the same manner, the salvation that he accomplished. He grants it to the church to look like him. That's beautiful. Suffering for the sake of your enemies and for the name of Christ. What a wonderful opportunity. We ought not shrink back from this opportunity. We, we ought to pursue it with joy. Think, for the sake of the lost, I, I get to endure suffering just as my Savior endured suffering. Think of the disciples in Acts chapter 5. This is when they called in the apostles. The apostles are out preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin calls them in. When they called in the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And nobody talks like this anymore. We hate conflict. We think persecution means that something is wrong. We want to run from it, do whatever we can not to be ridiculed or abused. We definitely don't think that persecution is something that we ought to rejoice in. But Christians are meant to see persecution and to see their suffering as an opportunity to identify with their Savior and to work to save those that he loves. That's why he grants it to us. We need to identify with him. Suffering also refines the believer. Not only helps show Christ to the world, but it makes us look more like Christ. It's meant to strip away all of the love that we have for this world. That's going to be Paul's entire point in chapter 4. Suffering strips away our love for comfort and for ease, and it makes us all the more dependent on Christ, that we are to look only to him as our greatest source of joy and satisfaction and comfort and peace. Suffering helps set our hearts 
on heaven and the treasures that we have there rather than the treasures that we have on this earth. And the more tightly we hold on to our earthly treasures, the more it's going to hurt when they're taken away. But the more you love Christ, the freer you are to let go of those earthly treasures. So again, we, we have a choice. We can take the, the pain that we experience in this life to let it lead us to anger, to resentment, can push us away from Christ, and we can agonize over our loss, or we let the pain and the hurt and the suffering lead us to something that is greater, to something that cannot be taken away, to something that gives us true and lasting peace to Christ himself. The option that we have in our afflictions either run from Christ in anger or run to Christ in joy. Much like a refiner adds fire to his gold so that he can burn away the impurities, Christ grants to us suffering to bring us closer to him, to help us look like him. That is what he is doing. That is the work he is doing in us in our suffering. He is purifying and purifying and purifying us so that we shine brighter and brighter as more and more pure gold. And your steadfastness, your firmness to stand in God's providential furnace will be a testimony to the world of the truth of the gospel. Let's sink in. You recognize that this is from the hand of my Father who loves me. He is, he is doing this for my good. So I'm going to stand and rejoice in it. That standing is a testimony to the world of the reality, the truth, of the gospel. Again, the world may suppress the truth. You can preach all you want. They're going to see it, and they may still reject it. But your response, your responsibility, is still to preach whether the world has ears to hear it or not. Your suffering at the hands of the world Paul tells us, declares to the world that there is a judgment coming. Do a little bit of work to unpack this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can see this. We're going to look at this in a little bit of depth. But there, 2 Thessalonians, Paul opens, speaking of the persecution that they are facing. And then he says, this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's the evidence? That you may be considered worthy 
of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. That's the same language as Philippians chapter 1, right? you're, You're suffering for the kingdom. It's a parallel idea. And Paul says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. See, Paul's expanding on what he said in in Philippians, but do you notice what he's saying here in Thessalonians? That that God allows the church's suffering. Okay, It's, it's granted by God. And this suffering proves that there is a judgment coming because we know and trust that God will repay the world for its affliction of the church. That's Paul's argument, that your suffering is proof of a judgment because God's not going to look past the suffering of the church. And the more patiently you endure, the more clearly you are proclaiming to the world that there is indeed a future judgment. Why is that? Well, because the more you bear and stand firm, you're demonstrating that you believe that God will judge. You believe where God says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Since the more you withhold your response and you, the, the less that you fight and the less that you antagonize, the, the more that you continue to be patient and endure and hold forth the hope of those who hate you, you are demonstrating that you have a greater hope than an immediate vindication of yourself. You're saying, I believe there is a vindication, so I, I can I can hold off on, on my response, and I can continue to hold forth the hope of the gospel. But that's how Paul says your endurance declares that there is destruction coming for the unbeliever. And there will come a point. The world will have to say to the church, you know, I hate what you preach. I don't believe a word of it. But I do have to admit that the church believes what it preaches. But if our response to the world is to repay evil for evil, to respond to its scoffing with mocking of our own, to seek to conquer our enemies at all costs, then we declare we don't actually believe there is a future judgment. We believe that we have to get what we can right now because God's not going to handle it at the end of the age. We're declaring we believe that this is all there is. And so we need to be the ones to win. We have to dole out judgment because God's not going to do anything about it. The church patiently endures the afflictions of the world to declare that we believe there is an end. There is a judgment. And we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges 
rightly. Think of Jesus again during his betrayal, during his arrest and his sham trial, during his crucifixion and all of the beatings and the floggings that he endures. In all of that, he remains silent. Like a lamb going to slaughter, does not open his mouth. He endures the evil, the greatest evil ever endured of wicked men. He does not open his mouth to mount a defense, does not call down legions of angels to wipe his enemies from the face of the earth. He endured for the sake of his enemy. The way we suffer holds him up to the world. And our hope is that in that endurance, God will finally open the eyes of the world to see what is true. I think Luke chapter 23, after Jesus dies and breathes his last, the centurion who's standing there watching all of it, saw what had taken place. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Or earlier in Luke's recounting, Jesus being hung between two thieves. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, he sees the way Jesus endures and he, he recognizes the truth. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus' innocence was a sign of one thief's condemnation. He's deserving what he gets. But it was a sign of another's justification. One thief has nothing to, better to do with his dying breaths than to mock the Son of God. Another, finally confronted with his own guilt in the presence of the Holy Lamb of God. Two thieves, two responses. You don't get to decide how the world responds to you. But you do get to determine how clearly you are going to set an example and hold up Christ to the world in your patient endurance when they revile you. Some will continue to revile. And they'll mock you on the way to their grave. But some will recognize the truth of Christ in you. And they will turn and offer praise to God. Now, some of you here this morning 
you may be here, and it's maybe beginning to dawn on you. You know, I have treated God's people with some resentment and the same type of contempt. Recognize, yeah, you've looked down upon Christians and how backwards you think we are. But now you're, you're starting to think of all of the Christians you've known, all the ways that God's people have been patient with you, all the ways they've loved you, all the ways they've endured your mocking. And now you're wondering, what if this is true? Why have they treated me? with such patience? How is it that these people have loved me through all of the times that I've been unlovable? Is God going to repay judgment upon me? And my answer is you wrestle with that. Is God going to repay judgment is a humble and straightforward Yes, he will. Your sin must be dealt with. Either in the eternal judgment of hell or in the full execution of God's wrath upon his son on the cross. God will deal with his judgment. But he has made a way to deal with it apart from pouring his wrath upon you. He has poured it on his son that all who look to him and trust in him and seek forgiveness from him will be saved. The reason the Christians that you know have been so patient and loving is because we too were once enemies of God. We know what it was like to mock, to ridicule, to hate God's people. We stood in the very same place you stand. We've also felt the freedom of knowing that all of your guilt and all of your shame have been taken by Christ and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and we want the same for you. The Christian's faithful endurance is a sign of your destruction, but it is also a sign of the salvation that they believe in and they want you to share in with them. So let's be a call to examine your life, to examine that there is a God, but he has made a way for you to escape the judgment that is justly due to you. It is in his son. And that the church sought to be an example of Christ, of loving its enemies. So Christian, do not run from opposition. Do not Hunker down as if the church is meant to be a bomb shelter from all that is 
taking place in the world. You do not fight back against the world in anger and fear and in the same mocking that the world uses. The Christian that loves God, that knows his gospel, stands firm. For when the church faithfully endures God-ordained persecution for the gospel, it refines her so that she might shine more brightly in this dark world. That the world might see its Savior and come to him. Let us pray. Father, we do confess how far short we fall of this command. How quickly we respond to the affliction and persecution of the world by running and hiding, afraid of what they might do to us, or how quickly we lead the charge, fighting a battle that is fought in a way you have condemned. Lord, we pray that you would help us treasure Christ, love Christ, and set an example to the world of what Christ has done. To the cross for his enemy. Would you help us to bear our own cross that we might set forth the truth of the gospel and that through us you would be pleased to save many. We ask all of this in the name of our beloved Savior. Amen.